Sister Ran, as we continue our journey into rediscovering the sacred, what are some of those things that come to mind for you when we think about those three questions? What have we lost? How do we lose it so fast? What are some of the things that we lost along the way and how can we recover the sacred? Well, David, first of all, I like the way you define the sacred. You didn't have a really narrow box, but just God made everything good. And I think that's so biblical. There's a passage, I didn't look it up for this. I just thought of it just a few minutes ago. And I think it's the end of Zechariah or Zephaniah that um, uh, in the future, when the temple is rebuilt and everything, God will declare even, even the pots and pans in Jerusalem are holy to the Lord. Everything becomes sacred because it glorifies him. Whatever we're doing can glorify him. So, uh, so yeah, our whole culture has to be, has to be godly. And, and uh, that, that's what it has to be. And it used to be before the, I think the doctrine of evolution, people took it for granted. There was a, there was, there were altars in every culture. Every, every archeologist has found altars. Somebody always recognized that we did not make ourselves and that we, we owe something to a creator. And uh, we definitely lost that in the last couple hundred years and that's just gone downhill. But um, um, how do we get here? Um, uh, you know, when I, when I want to know where we are in the culture, I look to Our Lady. She is the prophetess for our times. She has been appearing all over the world and with messages starting in 1830. And usually that's the, that's the job of the prophet to point out what God sees as our major sins and what we need to fix and where we went wrong and how we can get back on track. And uh, she started with 1830. That's on your miraculous medal. That, from that time forward, she began giving messages to the world and not just for some local local thing or some personal thing, which she did for thousands of years before. But it's 1830, um, she started um, uh, showing herself to St. Catherine Labouré, a little postulant, um, a, a lay sister, not a lay sister, but an active sister in France. And um, she pointed out... Uh, um, well, the, the miraculous medal, what is it? It is Mary standing on the serpent. She is, she is that woman of Genesis. It's her time to crush not the little serpent in the garden, but the great big dragon in Revelation 12. So um, that was kind of announcing that she's at war now, and she wants us to be involved in that. And uh, um, many people don't realize that she starts showing um, St. Catherine Labouré visions of what was going on in France. Um, they were having the, the France on um, Paris was divided into sectors called communes and they were rebelling. And that was where we get our whole idea of communism. And uh, they think Karl Marx was a young Karl Marx was probably watching that how to rebel against the government. And so and, and right then, I mean, France was already in the midst of the whole it, it was recovering trying to recover from the horrible French Revolution, but we know now that the whole French Revolution was inspired by Freemasonry, um, liberty, fraternity, and equality. Um, would you say, David, that equality can be, can be um, uh, tr you can transfer that word with tolerance? Tolerance seems to be the great religion today. We have to let everything go. We just, everything's okay. And everything's equal. Um, all, all, all religions are equal. And so that's pretty much um, what Mary was starting to complain of. And so all of her major apparitions began in France, in France, in France. She, she keeps going to France. And uh, France is really the 
icon of Mary. She is the icon of the bride church. She's the eldest daughter. And so um, I think that's why she focused on France so much, um, because she's sending a message about who we are as a church, the bride church. And it's going to be it's going to be are we going to be the, the harlot church of Babylon or are we going to be the bride coming down from heaven in the book of Revelation? So I think that's where we are, how we got here. Um, just not. And, and the first three, the first um, three things she's talking about um, at uh Right after 1830, um, she, she, wants, she wants attention to herself, that this is her battle with Satan, and she wants um, that miraculous medal struck, and she's going to give graces with it to prove that she's part of this, this whole thing, and she's leading us in the battle. It's her, she, is, she is at battle with Satan more than anybody else. And, um, and, that, and that is as her, as her um, place as the icon of the bride, because it is really, it's really the turn of the whole church to go through her crucifixion, to be like her mate, like her bridegroom. And so we're going to go through that as a body. And she will just expound on that as the apparitions around the world increase. We take them all together and listen to what she's saying. But um, right after 1830, she went to um, a Carmelite nun of Tours. And uh, that was also Jesus was revealing himself as in, in revelations of the holy face and um, he was complaining and so was Mary about the first three commandments those are all about worship giving to God and what had France done they stopped going to Sunday mass they weren't um, being a Christian nation anymore I mean that was part of the whole French Revolution to to change the seven-day week to a 10-day week to get everybody off track and so he said you've got to be going back to mass you want Holy communion and stop taking the name of the Lord's name in vain. And those first three commandments were vital. If we don't get God's worship, everything else we do for charity, the other seven commandments, those that, that's secondary. We first got to get that vertical union with God back on track. And uh, But the bishop, I mean, the prioress believed uh, Mother, uh, little sister, Marie um, Saint-Pierre, but uh, the bishop wasn't too interested. He was one of those probably a Masonic clergy. There were a lot of Masons in the clergy in those days. And so, um, so he just wouldn't publish, you know, the statements that our Lord was asking for reparation. And so um, she started praying, Mary, would you just go tell somebody else? Because I'm not getting the message out. And so the next place she went was to La Salette. And that was her message about the first, the public messages was about the first three commandments. And so it went on and on. So I would say that's where we are. Mary says um, we went away from worship to God and made it all about um, this world. And uh, that's really the Masonic way, isn't it? Just um, uh, it's very much this world religion, just fraternity with each other, success in business. And, uh, and God is kind of, you know, not real important. So uh, that, that's where I would say Mary's telling us. And that's why uh, I, that's where I feel called to spread Mary's worst messages because she's the one telling us to get our act together. Yes. Yeah, so, Sister Anne, I, I think one of the key teachings of Freemasonry, I think that applies here, is just their core principle, their their central teaching, their dogma of indifferentism. And by indifferentism. 
Freemasons have built a whole country, you know, so to speak. I think the United States, this idea of this, just this deistic God, this separation of church and state, which Pope Leo and Pope Pius blamed them for. And indifferentism just says there's all religions are equal, um, that there's really nothing supernatural. And I think this has affected us a lot in the United States, but also I think around the world. And when we go back to the apparitions of our Blessed Mother Mary, I think at times we've been in differentism. I could think of Our Lady of Cahibo and Rwanda, that I think we were indifferent to that message. And then perhaps other times we responded not, not as fast. And I think there's a consequence when we don't recognize the truth. We're just indifferent to the truth. So I was wondering if you can teach us why. Why is it that we are indifferent at times? And how does indifferentism affect us in regards to our pursuit of the sacred? Well, you're humble to make that a we question because you are not indifferent to your faith, David. You take it very seriously and you're I just admire your apostolic outreach. You just give all your extra time to that. And uh, you're just so, so generous in trying to get the word out to whoever will listen. And, um, and you are reaching a lot of people. But um, I, I would say there's a, there's a little secret about prophecies and Mary's coming to people. Um, she's, she, prophets always talk about that if you all don't shape up, if the culture doesn't change, there's gonna be a chastisement. And who listens? I mean, it's the very people who are not going to church, who don't care what God is saying, who who do the very minimum, um, who show up just once in a while, Christmas and Easter people, you know, it's those people who are never going to hear her. Or if they do, it's sometimes it's a very superficial, um, you know, their, their rosary turns colors or something. It just lasts a short time and they're back to their old ways. So um, really, and that's what we saw. I compared this, this moment in history is almost parallel to the 200 years of prophets. Almost all the prophets in the Old Testament are in a 200 year window before the fall of Jerusalem, because God kept saying, you guys, you have introduced so many other religions into Jerusalem. You welcome so many other gods and you're just you're just making a syncretism of everything. And uh, Mary is saying something very similar here that God's going to burn down the whole thing. And you're going to think the church died because God will not will not he, he will not stand competition. He's either going to burn it down and we're going to start over. And uh, that's what happened. He sent them all off to Babylon and and they came back with a remnant and built a, built, built a really strong, strong Judaism from there. And I think that's what that's what we're heading for now. But what so what good was 200 years of prophets? I mean, they killed them, they stoned them, they made fun of them. It's a total waste of time. Why does God send prophets when he knows they're going to be rejected? He doesn't send prophets really to convert the bad. He sends them because they're preaching to the choir. It's those who believe who really listen. And those who believe are saying, look at how bad things are around here. We see, we don't like the way our children are being, you know, introduced to all sorts of evils. We don't like this. We don't like this. And the other people are saying, well, everything's fine. This is good. We tolerate this. We just respect each other. No, no, we, we have a narrow parameter of what is good and what is right and wrong. And it's so comforting to hear a prophet Someone speak in the name of the Lord and say, God is upset too. It's not just you who are upset. You're not imagination. You know, God is upset. And, and probably they're not going to convert. But after the chastisement, I promise you, we'll rebuild. The Messiah will come. It will all be good. And that's what Mary's been saying. 
over and over of Fatima, what did she say? In the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. And that is what, um, that, that's the people I reach are people who are listening to her and they want to be here that over and over. Okay, it's getting bad, it's getting bad. But in the end, yes, we're on the winning side. It's going to triumph. Maybe we won't see it. Maybe our kids will. Um, but that's what we have to hold on to, David. And uh, that that's really what it's for because there's a lot of people who are not indifferent. And I tell you, and, and I can tell you just, just as because I kind of dress as a nun right now, um, you'll introduce, um, it, um, you'll explain I'm between communities. I was a Carmelite nun for many years and I hope to start a new congregation. So I still kind of dress like a nun because I'm not going to waste time figuring out a hairdo and earrings and all that stuff. But, um, you know, just, just going up to the cash register, people who are not Catholic, who don't know me from Adam, they just see that I represent something about Christianity and they'll just start start spilling out like how bad our country's going down. Are we at a Christian con country? Where, where are are where are things going? And I've just met so many people from the Gulf Coast to up here to Wisconsin, all over the Midwest, and they, they're all concerned. We have a lot of Americans of all denominations who are good, right-thinking people who are praying, but uh, they don't make the news. Thanks to you, a few of us make the news, but um, there's a lot of good people in this country and they are listening to God and they are not indifferent. And uh, so sometimes, the media gets all the microphones and they put they plaster the the big names their big names which they have made big but really it's really a tiny tiny minority that are they're running things and, and um but we'll be sucked in that way if we don't fight against it but that was the first time i ever heard sister ran someone speak of the idea of speaking to the choir as like a positive thing like that the so why does the choir, and you said this in so many words, but I wanted to see if you could say more about it, that like, why does the choir need to be affirmed? Because you're made to feel like you're all alone and that you're the only one who thinks this way. And that many times people in our family have also left the church or else they're compromised with a lot of the teachings. You know, they're into affirming this and that, which is not part of the gospel. And so after a while, you start questioning yourself. And I'll, I'll just remind you what happened in Poland. Uh, many people have already forgotten, but when John Paul was first elected Pope, he was coming from a very communist country and the communists were very unhappy that, that, it, that their own countrymen, you know, made it to, to Italy. And John Paul kept saying, I want to come home and I want to, I want to celebrate mass for my people. And they did not want that because they did not want any religion going on in that country. And they, they were constantly made people to think that anybody who went to mass, you know, they had some churches open, but anybody who went to mass should keep their head low and they're going to get punished and nobody else was doing this and they're alone. And so, so, uh, but, but John Paul just kept threatening the government. He said, well, if you tell me I can't come, I'm going to let the whole world know that you're lying about freedom of religion in these communist countries, blah, blah, blah. So um, John Paul put in a pressure on them. They finally let him come in. And so he had a mass in a park. Um, I don't know where it was. I can't remember, but there were like tens and thousands of people jammed together in this park. As far as you could see, it was just people wrapped in attention, happy to be at the mass, thrilled that they had a Pope. And people started looking around and they said, my gosh, everybody's Catholic here. There's only a communist way over there, a communist standing way over there. He said, I thought, I thought I was this tiny minority and here we're the majority. 
and see that's the that's the way the media does it and that's what they're doing they're gaslighting americans right now to make us think we are we are almost alone and so that's why um and actually i will tell you because that community is dissolved now um, i started out in a carmelite monastery in southern missouri there wasn't any in kansas i was born in kansas so i went to southern missouri and it started out as a good community but then it just there, there, there were some things creeping in and some bad retreat masters and an indifferent um, bishop. They're all dead now. Um, but I was all alone and I kept thinking, I don't think this is good. And I never even knew what the new age was. It was totally new, new to me back in the late, early, late 70s, early 80s. And I just thought these, these doctrines aren't good. And so at night I would go and read encyclicals and I got the most help from Pius XII. Um, he was oh, he was a prophet, Mystici Corporis and Mediator Dei. He was already calling out a lot of the errors that I was seeing. I thought, gosh, why don't the others see it? This is so strange. And uh, I was just felt so alone. And uh, and whenever I tried to say anything, they were just marginalize me, marginalize me. At first, they they elected me to one small position, and then they no no, I don't like the way she's talking. So I was left in the basement most of the time. But um, but I, that they weren't keeping me from keeping the rule, and you know that's all you want as a in a in a cloister. And what I was hearing about some other monasteries wasn't good, so I just figured, well, at least I can keep the rule. And then one day I found um, a whole case. Someone had left a whole case of the Marian movement messages that she was giving to Father Gobi, and I started reading that Mary is saying exactly what I'm feeling, exactly what I'm running into, and I just felt so affirmed, so comforted, and uh, that just made me strong. And uh, I, I never backed down after that. I thought, I'm on the right, I'm on the winning team. And uh, pretty soon the doors opened. John Paul, um, he, he, it was a long story. But anyway, I got out of that monastery, went up up north to one in St. Paul. And uh, it was 20 years up there. It was happily ever after. So it was, it was a good thing. But yeah, you can feel very isolated, especially in your family or work, you know? Yeah, I never thought about it like that. The remnant, um, the prophets, is really just God be merciful. I never that that's that's a that's a good thing to hear. But in light of that, how would you say that? Well, well, how did we get here? In, in spite of God being merciful with us and, and communicating with us, sending his his word, his prophets, the the apparitions of our blessed Mother Mary. How would you say that we 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 still arrive here? at this point where indifferentism has seemed to become this religion? Well, I mean, Mary has said it. I, I mean, she was pointing out from 1830 that it was communist, the, the principles of communism. She said it would grow. And then at Fatima, she was just, she said, absolutely, you've got to do something quick or it's going to be full blown all over the world. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we wave red flags and call ourselves communists, but we've we've adopted communism in our universities now. We've got a soft communism all over our country. And um, uh, so it has spread and it all seems so good because what else is, what was the Acts of the Apostles? Sharing everything in common, uh, you know, it all, it's, it's very close, all the weeds, are very close. They almost look like like the real deal. It's very hard to weed a garden in the very beginning because because they look very close. And that's why Jesus says, "Let's let them grow up together and then separate them." Because you can hardly you can hardly tell the difference at first unless you're really careful and astute and living a deep spiritual life. And so, I would maintain that there there is a strong remnant that is living that spiritual life and has been following Mary's messages. 
But yeah, the rest of the world, most of it has gone down the garden path. And, uh, and I would say that, and, and part of communism, I read in different things, part of it was spread immorality because that weakens people. So um, sexual liberty, um, the contraceptive mentality, all of that, oh, live, live in sin before you get married, test out your marriage, make sure you want this partner, yeah, that never works out. But um, yeah, all these wrong things and what they do is put us in the state of mortal sin and then we're not in a state of grace. And when people are not in a state of grace, they lose the light and people don't even have common sense when you lose the state of grace. Um, you lose, you're in darkness because you're in a certain bondage to Satan and he's got, he's got you in blinders and, and clouds and uh, you can still be a nice person in many ways, but, uh, but you're not, you're really not, you, you, you belong to him. And so it's gradually captured our world bit by bit, like the, like the frog in water. But um, so I say there's, there's a lot of frogs who are not in the water, but, uh, but yeah, there are too many. It, it got into our culture and brought us down, sin, temptation. And, and I would like to throw in something that just, just um, I saw it on a YouTube that something led me, I guess I was following the financial crash, something like, you know, where do you put your dollars right now? Do you keep them in dollars or do you convert to silver? What do you do? And I, you know, what people have given me, I try to be frugal and, uh, and prudent with it. And so I read something, I wish I had taken notes, but it was very, very shocking that um, a lot of the financial situation we're in now um, wasn't really the decision of big, big names. Uh, it was many, many, many businessmen over decades who compromised, who knew that they were, that they were exporting, that they were making deals on dividends, the things that was not real money and they were speculating and they were having people invest in their company and then they would take paychecks on projected earnings. They were, they were playing games with money and they were also um, trying for cheap labor and uh, that's really defrauding people of a fair wage. So just because you can get it done in another country for something cheap, are you really looking at how those people are living? Do they have a fair day's wage? And was it right for you to make a huge profit on somebody else's labor. So there were many, many little sins by many people. Um, we like to blame the deep state and the big names, but really, um, and how many people have compromised um, with, with um, sex in the family? Uh, just how much, how much incest went on in the family? Um, how much, how many sins went on? How much greed went on? Housewives wanting this and this, pushing their husbands to work more hours and be away from home. There's just many, many little sins that did it. I think I, I don't really want to point at big names. I think we're. I think everybody has to take some responsibility. It it was it was a, it was you, you build a city with a lot of little bricks. You don't build them with one one brick here and one brick there, and that makes a big city. No, it it, it escalated. Well, I was just really shocked when in 2019 or 2020, when the whole um, the pandemic started and then, you know, an election followed that. And I think, you know, we can say there was a period of time when a lot of people didn't know what was going on. Things seemed to be confusing. But as time went on, it was clear to, I guess, a lot of people that we were being lied to about a lot of things. And I guess over history, we could even go back to, I don't know, what happened in Iraq and 
the 19 was the 1990s when we were told they had these weapons of mass destruction and then later on we found out oh, these these were lies and so we've and like you know these are just some of the most recent things I, I could think about but what what's going on sister and that we're just so okay if there is a if sacred isn't being pursued or this, there's there's a diminished sense of the sacred that means that something else has been filling in that space and was seen to be that well it's lies that have filled that space people seem to be more have more uh, inclined to live the lie than they want inclined to live the truth and i think this is everything you're talking about communism and freemasonry and differentism and, and sin the pervasiveness of it pornography and just all this stuff so what's going on in our in our conscious and in our in our societies where the lie has filled up such a big space david who is the father of lies satan it's it, it just proved to me you can't even on on trusted channels people people talking heads you know i want to believe them but where are they getting their information it's like you can't trust any source right now no matter where you go on the internet the news or your friends you just wonder the sources we used to trust, can we trust those? And we're finding more and more is lies the farther down you get. It's like right now you don't know who to believe and you lose your sense of balance when everything is a lie. And that to me is the proof that Satan is ruling right now. We are at we are moving into the time of the Antichrist because John Paul nailed it um, before he was cardinal. And Pope Paul VI really admired him a lot for what he was doing with his publishings and all this stuff. And he invited him to give a retreat um, at Lent in the Vatican. And Foytia uh, wrote, of, you know, he gave a retreat. If you ever read it, it's published as, the, as a little book called The Sign of Contradiction. And I used to use that for prayer so many times. But, um, but he, and, and, and he's a man who grew up in the communist era. So they were constantly getting bombarded with propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. And you know, that was Lenin or Stalin. If you say it enough times, eventually somebody will believe the lie. And he said, they were so tired of the lies, but he said, what is the lie? It's the anti-word. And so the anti-word is really the prelude to the antichrist. And uh, I think that's where we're at right now. We're just surrounded with anti-words. We don't know. And, and so, so that's one reason I am a little bit merciful to some people in my family who um, who believe some of the lies because, well, they're not sure who to trust, you know. And so, why are my sources better than their sources? You know, how how can I prove everything? In Carmel, I meditated many times on the gospel, on the Passion of Christ, and I was often struck and comforted that uh, Jesus uh, knew that uh, say that Judas knew where they would be meeting at the cynical and the upper room and that when when Judas left the uh, left left the gathering at the Last Supper he knew, Judas knew where Jesus always prayed at the agony at the garden in Gethsemane that was their normal place and Jesus did not let that um, knowledge get hidden um, so, he was allowing himself to be betrayed because only as God did he know what was going to happen. So normally we don't know who our traitors are. Only God knew. But um, so uh, Jesus said, yes, it's human 
to be deceived by the people we trust. And, you know, that night, um, none of the apostles guessed it was Judas who would be the traitor. Judas had worked miracles. Judas took alms and distributed alms to the poor. Um, you know, Judas was, he, he looked very good. And so we do, we, we get deceived by our leaders and it's painful not to trust them. And um, it seems disrespectful. And so, um, yeah, it's just natural for us to trust our, our, um, our elders, people who know more than we do. We depend on people to be specialists in different fields. Based upon that, Sister Rand, what do you think we've, we've lost along the way in the sense of our, the sense of the sacred? Well, uh, we can make a long list of the things of the sacred that we're sorry we lost. And, and my grandparents could tell stories about, you know, living in a small town and there weren't even any locks on any doors and old cars didn't even start with a key. They just started with the button. People um, had a lot of trust in smaller towns. We, we, it'd be wonderful to go back to those old days. And yet, um, no, I don't, I think, yeah, we lost a lot, a, a, some, some of that sense of things that would have been good, but I think we lost something important that it was time to lose. And that was our, our um, childhood. Um, the church is supposed to be a bride, but um, she had to mature over the centuries until she could reach that time for marriage. And this is an exciting moment. And the whole book of the apocalypse is all about a big wedding feast. It's time finally for the church as the body to act as the bride of Christ. And what happens after marriage? Um, that is the time when you become fruitful and uh, Christ becomes your progenitor and you become fruitful. I mean, we have not converted the world. And that's what Vatican II was all about. It was a pastoral council. It says, great, we're doing great. We have lots of vocations, but you know, there's 6 million people back then at the planet and we've only got a million Catholics. So what are we, where are the other 5 million? You know, we're not evangelizing well enough. We're not engaging with the world enough. And that's because I think we have to become bridal. We have to become holy. And um, until we reach that real state of union with Christ, and that requires going through those, those, um, that dark night of the spirit, the dark night of the soul, we have to be purified and that's painful. And, um, but also we have to understand where we're headed and be excited to reach, to make those sacrifices, to give up self, to be in union with Christ. And then Christ becomes the principle and he becomes our fruitfulness. And that's where we will convert the world. And so, uh, so I don't think it's such a bad thing, what we're going through. Um, yeah, it's painful, but I think we're I think lay people like yourself, I mean, I see so many lay people who are stepping up to evangelize in, in their mission that they, in the past, they would say, well, that's, that's for nuns and priests to do that. Well, yeah, maybe it's a good thing that nuns and priests have been confused and, and have, have stepped back and lost their way. Yeah, yeah, the lay people are running into the fire with the fire hoses and say, let's do something. And uh, now they understand also that um, the priests and the, and the sisters have their place. And we all need to work together because the, the church is a trinity. Um, it's a family. There's the father of the family. That's the priest who brings the bread and, and the discipline and, and the rules. And, and then there's, then there's the, the sons who are Christ in the world. That's the lay status who are supposed to 
They're the ones who engage, rub shoulders with people who are not Catholic. They're the ones who are supposed to bring the gospel to the world, not the priests. I mean, and the sisters. I mean, I mean, non-Catholics aren't going to aren't going to talk to those people. It's you lay people who are supposed to be doing that. And um, and then there's the mothers who are who are religious and and traditionally most religious have always been female. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And the, then the mother in the family, she flits around keeping the family together. She, she, she watches what the husband is doing, encourages him in his business. She's watching what all the kids are doing, encouraging them in their careers and their choices. And she's connecting everybody. And that's what religious do. They're supposed to connect the priests and make sure he's reaching all and everybody in the parish is understanding them. And so the religious are supposed to be in between. And right now um, the religious have, have, have gone, gone astray because Satan has really confused them about their identity. And he went after the mothers of the families first. He wanted them, oh, you got to vote. You've got to be in sports. You've got to go to the universities. You've got to carry a business card. And pretty soon, what became of our families when the mother wasn't there most of the time? She lost her place. And uh, the church has kind of fallen into confusion when the sisters lost their identity. And, and that's, that's surprising, but it's the Holy Spirit who has that invisible role. So, um, so, but I'm excited. I'm excited that the lay people have finally realized, and that was the whole point. Most of Vatican II was for the lay people. It was for most of, that was a pastoral council to, to declare dogmatically that everyone is called to the highest degree of union uh, with Christ. You're all called to the heights of union and that was always debated over the centuries. Well, maybe maybe lay people shouldn't have that burden placed on them. It's just it's just the priests and religious are supposed to you know, strive for that, and lay people shouldn't have to. And, and Vatican II said, no, we're all called to that. It's part of our baptismal role. And so I just find so many people, lay people, going out to get doctorates, and and they're taking theology courses, and they're so hungry for the truth, and uh, it's helping them to stand up against all the lies of our times. And so I think we lost our childhood. And you know, that doesn't mean we don't have happy memories. It doesn't mean the childhood wasn't important and that we can't recognize the good in it, but um, we're not supposed to say kids forever. We're supposed to grow up and have children of our own. And so I think the church is gonna be moving into a very fruitful, wonderful era. And that's that thousand year reign um, that, that uh, the apocalypse promises, but we have to get through, we have to get through the chastisements and the war and all that ugly stuff first. So that was very positive. When you were speaking, I was thinking about um, the papacy of Pius IX and how during his papacy, the papal states were, were lost un under him and how he had, he had the long pontificate. Uh, and he had to make this transition of no longer being this like monarch type of pope. And this transition where he had to figure out, well, if I don't have to rule a bunch of papal states, well, maybe we can just focus on the spiritual things. Maybe we could just be church and not empire. But over time, yeah, I see that simplicity, that, that trajectory that Christ has been and the Holy Spirit has been leading his church to be more simple, to be more pure and to focus on those things that are that are ordered to our salvation. So yeah, that, that that's that, that's quite phenomenal, and so that's a positive message. And if we were thinking about the question, like, well, where do we go from here? How do we recover that sense of sacred? Well, how how would that then therefore fit within the uh, which we're talking about the thousand year reign and, and the chastisement? I think maybe we've already went there in the sense that you brought it. 
you, you mentioned the monarch, monarchy pope. We want that pope to be the father of all and tell us what to do and, and be that strong symbol. And we just be the children who obey him. And, um, you know, it was John Paul who felt the burden of a church that was just vast. I mean, it had outgrown Europe long time before he got there. And he, I mean, there were, the, the church was so enormous. And for him to appoint bishops in all these different countries, he knew that he didn't know all these men. He could not possibly vet all these people. And so he had to delegate. And he kept saying, we've got to get away from, you know, trusting only that whatever the Pope says is this. I mean, we've got to learn to delegate. And that's why he really wanted to beef up the College of Bishops to make them understand their responsibility and make um, the church branch out. So it wasn't such um, so such a heavy, heavy burden on the Pope. And uh, many people criticized him that he didn't stay home behind a desk and answer all these questions and, and make all these decisions. But he wanted to be with the people too and uh, really getting a sense of what the church needed. And he kept reaching out over and over and over to the Orthodox brothers. And he said, yes, um, you, we believe almost everything the same, but the main problem is the primacy of Peter. You don't want that to be exercised so monolithically. And he says, what can we do to find a way that you would accept Peter as the monarch and that I could delegate a lot of this stuff. How can we how can we approach that? And he kept asking that question over and over of the bishops and of the and of the Eastern Church. And even the Protestants have problems with, you know, they they want some authority and yet they don't want the Pope to just to be the king. And um, and it's not right. I mean it was never meant meant for every last thing that that a Pope says on, on a on a plane trip or you know in a book or whatever is is not meant to be um, uh, from ex cathedra, you know, and and we're, we've really lost that. I mean, we've never gained uh, a good sense of where should, where do we go? And so I think we're just in that in that growing stage. I think the church is like a teenager now trying to move into adulthood. And uh, we're kind of rebellion. There's some rebellion. There's flexing our, our muscles. And yet we 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 admire some adults in our lives. And yet and yet we want to be the adults ourselves and make our own decisions. And yet, uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's a difficult place to be. We are living in a transition moment and it's not comfortable. It's not easy, but you know, right now Satan's method and it's in his communist method is it's most, almost every military method is to get your enemies divided so that they don't stand united up front against you. Let them be start bickering among themselves and then you can pick them off. You can you can go after smaller groups. It's when they stand shoulder to shoulder that you have a hard time taking them on. And right now they're trying to divide the Catholic Church into good Catholics, serious Catholics, not not just you know indifferent Catholics, but they're trying to divide good strong Catholics against each other. And they're going after these silly liturgy wars, which I'm sorry for saying silly, because a lot of it's based on very superficial. Um, hit, hit, you know, they just grab a slogan and people run with it, thinking that they have to defend the church and grab the court, the football and run to the, the next mark. And, and, and we've got to run together. We've got to play together. And so um, this whole thing with the, I think, I think the Latin language is kind of proof that we're, we're in that moment of shedding our, our childhood, our past to move into adulthood. And the Latin language 
is a part of some of those things of our past that we don't want to give up. And, um, and there's a, there's a true and false in that. We, we can't just renounce our whole childhood. That would be wrong. All of our, all of our heritage, all the, th all the traditions, all the things we grew up with, all of those are good things, but we, but to, to, but to move forward, we have to move into the next level. And the church went through this twice before. In the very beginning, the church, um, I mean, what were, what were those first early apostles doing? They were meeting in the temple. They didn't even understand after Jesus died that the church, that, that there was a Christian church and a Jewish church. It didn't make, that didn't occur to them. They just felt that, that the Jews had predicted the Messiah forever and they were devout Jews because they recognized the Messiah. And so they kept going to the temple for the liturgies and they kept meeting for the Psalms daily and praying those. And those Psalms were sung to certain melodies that had been a thousand years old. David had composed those melodies with some of the other Levites. And so they sang those songs in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. Um, and they knew those songs back and forth. And, but it was, it wasn't their everyday language. They were speaking mostly Aramaic. And so, but they knew that was their, their litur liturgical language, but they were, you know, but the, but the synagogue, a lot of the synagogue liturgy, you know, was, was not really liturgy. It was what they, what they worshiped in at their, at their local, um, local towns was in the Aramaic. And so there was a mix there. And so, and so when they moved out beyond that, they kept those Psalms with them. But then they started moving into the bigger church. And in, in the first three or 400 years of the church, most of the Roman Empire, Greek was the common language. And that went back to Alexander the Great. And people don't realize that Greek, even though they had Roman soldiers everywhere, everybody, Greek was the, Greek was the language for, for commerce, for trade, for getting your international news. And, uh, and so Greek was really the language. And so that the church began to, and, and, the, and the Jews had already translated the whole Old Testament into Greek um, at the, as a couple of centuries before. And so the church began trans, tra her celebrating her liturgy in Greek. And so we've got, you know, we've got two words left of the Hebrew. We got alleluia and amen. That's the, that's the extent of our, our Hebrew language. And in Greek, what have we got left? Kyrie eleison. That's about the extent of our Greek heritage left. And now, um, and, and, but what were they speaking? They were not speaking classical um, Greek. That's a very complicated word. The people just learned a basic Greek, which they called Koine or Kitchen Greek. And that was for trade. And, you know, but in their own dialect, every, there were hundreds of dialects all over the Mediterranean and Europe. And people spoke every day their own language. But for trade, they, they learned a little bit of these common languages. And that was Kitchen Greek. And the whole New Testament, almost all of it is in Kitchen Greek, which has about 50 nouns. I mean, it's low class Greek and it's something people can learn. And so, um, so when the Greek empire, the whole empire was spilling up against, and so we had two emperors and the Greek, and so we had a Roman emperor, uh, the Roman emperor was in, living in Constantinople and took the Greek side. Then, then it all got um, the Latin emperor in Rome. They had the Latin, so, so pretty soon the, the liturgy had to, had to change to Latin because people weren't speaking Greek much anymore. They were speaking a low class, Latin. It was not the classical Latin, which is a very complicated, difficult thing. They were that now they were using common Latin. And you know the word for common? It's vulgar. And you know the name of the common Bible that the, the Pope in the 400s, he commissioned St. Jerome. He said, 
He said, we need, we, we got to get away from the, the Greek and the Hebrew. People don't understand that. We now need a common language Bible. So I want you to translate that into vulgar, vulgate, Latin, common Latin. So it was a low class Latin and pretty soon it became kind of a dead language. And so, so that became the Latin that most people used as a common language for everything. Even until like the 1960s, many universities in Europe were still using Latin. Their professors were teaching in Latin. They weren't even, they, it was just, um, it, um, it was just common um, because it was the, the language of everything. But you know what the common language is now? English. Almost everybody on the planet, if they're going to learn a second language, it's English. And part of that is because of the British Empire that conquered so many places. And uh, uh, so if you wanted, you know, they were governing in English and, and many of these places like India, they might have two or three hundred dialects. So if you're going to have one one language, you know, teach English in school, so you have something in common. And so that's what they did in the Philippines all over the place. And so pretty much people learn English and then the computer world broke forth. And that was American software. So if you're going to learn the computer, you, you study English computer man manuals. And do you know where most of the medical and dental books are printed in, in English in America. So like, if you're gonna to go to dental school, I know this because my, my brother's a dentist. So he gives, he goes all over the world um, giving conferences. And I said, well, how, how do you ha handle all those, all those interpreters? He goes, well, I never have an interpreter. If they went to dental school, they learned English so they could read the dental books. They don't translate all the dental terms into Polish or Swahili or something. You just learn it and then and then get it in the theory and then you move on. And so most of the world is English, right? All the pilots they have to know English if they're going to um, if they're going to talk to the to the um, what do you call it the tower tower people whatever they are. Yeah. So if, if they have to know a basic English. So now we're moving into and English isn't a friendly language. It's difficult to learn. And uh, Latin isn't the most easy language to learn either. And I'm sorry, I wish it was something easier. I think Spanish is probably easier. But um, English is what people are striving to deal with our completely crazy language with so many exceptions, more than rules. But um, but but that's where we're moving and people are going to have to face it that we have to move on. We don't have time to keep up multiple languages. And, uh, but it's true that we have, but we do have almost a 1500 year history of the church in Latin. So we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands, I guess, of manuscripts and writings uh, uh, in Latin. And those things cannot all be translated into all the modern languages. And for canon law, we need a, a definite, precise, understanding of a dead language that doesn't change that will always be good um but and but and we have and, we, and it's our own history let so so that the, we have different rights in the church and so um so so though they keep some of their their music and stuff in their original language but then they that then the rest of the liturgy isn't something people understand and so that was a principle of vatican II. it wasn't to get rid of latin it, it was only to make make the liturgy accessible to people and the and the scriptures and so um so these wars over latin and it, it's just sad because um and, and it's just sad but um yeah so so satan is trying to divide us over things that we, we should be standing together so i think we need to grow up and get past it and say we'll, we'll deal with all the liturgy things later but let's stand firm together for our culture for the principles of what what uh, the, against the sins of our time. Well, Sister Rand, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on 
our return to the sacred. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, David, for inviting me.